Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thanks so much for lending us your ears and your only non-renewable resource, your time. This is part two of my interview with Silicon Ranch CEO, Reagan Farr. If you missed part one, well, you must have jumped right past it. So I'd encourage you to stop, go back to that one and come back here. You're still listening. So I'm going to assume you either like backward stories or you've already listened to the amazing backstory to how Silicon Ranch came into existence. In this part two, Reagan and I get into the meat and potatoes of how they went to market to build far more than the 150 megawatts that first compelled him out of the starting blocks, you're going to learn what it really looks like to understand how policy can make or break a market, how Reagan and his co-founders selected the markets they would operate in, and how they ultimately attracted one of the largest multinational energy companies in the world to invest in their next phase of growth. I hope that you already subscribed to the show, but if you're still looking for a reason to stick around for more, well, this episode won't disappoint. And when you're ready, you can always check out the other 398 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. I hope that you'll subscribe to the show in your podcast player, but also to my email over at the website, which comes out regularly, trying to help you navigate the clean energy economy. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Reagan, at some point in your career, you had to make a decision. I'm going to stay in government, be a tax man, or I'm going to follow a different path. Clearly, in you know hindsight, we can see that you follow a different path. Take me back to the moment where it became clear to you that your path was going to take you out of government and into creating something on your own, that final step into entrepreneurship. I give a lot of credit to my two fellow co-founders because the, the natural off-ramp from being a commissioner of revenue is, is uh, especially if you have a big four background, is, is to go be a partner at a law firm or a big four accounting firm. And uh, had you asked me, what my dream job was coming out of law school, I would have said I want to be a partner at a law firm or a big four accounting firm. So it was, uh, it was interesting um, having mentors, and, and I think really it's, it's so interesting. And if I have a goal for myself, it's to have the kind of impact on others that some of my mentors have had on me. Mm. Spending time with Governor Bredesen, getting to know him, he had really encouraged me to view my opportunity in state government is, is a chance to step off and do something different. He's like, you can always go be a partner at a big four accounting firm. You can always go be a partner at a law firm. You only get the chance to try something new coming out of this platform once. And he said, I don't know what it's going to be, mm-hmm. but 
you have had experiences that, that you should be able to think of something yeah. entrepreneurial that you want to do. Uh, so it was interesting. My, my, my good friend, Matt Kisper, and I had, had kind of had a gentleman's agreement. Let's do something entrepreneurial together. Mm. Because the obvious answer for Matt, he had been a vice president at, at a large bank. And, and that was kind of an obvious off-road for him. Uh, go be an executive at, at, mm-hmm. at, a, at a bank and business development or be a consultant for economic development. So um, we both kind of said we, wanna, we want to build something together. Uh, we had the most important thing for doing that, which I think is uh, we had very similar uh, moral compass and we had a good underlying appreciation for each other's skills, which were quite complimentary. Mm-hmm. So we were going to do something together. Governor Bredesen offered to be a mentor to us as we thought through a variety of opportunities. It was really through bouncing different ideas off the governor, uh, talking to Matt, that um, one, I became convinced we're going to start a company. Mm-hmm. Two, I became more and more convinced that company was going to be a renewable solution provider company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was interesting. We we had other opportunities that we explored quite deeply. In fact, we even had lined up an investment for a whole different uh, line of business. I always keep that. Uh, we submitted a term sheet to somebody to buy a buy a, buy a company that we were going to uh, take over and run and expand and grow, and, and we missed the bid by. I don't know, half a million dollars. And uh, I said, man, there is a great data point for had we hit that bid, we might not have had all hmm. the time and attention to focus on Silicon Ranch to, to grow this company into what we did. So, uh, Do, Would you mind sharing what, what line of business that was in? Matt Kisper's family came out of the retail uh-huh. department store business back when they were family department stores. Uh, it was Kisper's department store. And uh, they had... Um, been one of the first department stores in the South to offer in-store credit to minority families. So it became this, um, this uh, regional store because people would say I could shop uh, right down, downtown in my town, but if I go to Kisbers, I'm going to be treated with respect. I'll wow. be able to mm-hmm. buy things on credit regardless of my race. So Matt had really been brought up in that retail business mm-hmm. and had seen that business completely transformed by uh, chain department stores. So his background, I always laugh. When we travel, he loves to shop. Hmm. You can look at my wardrobe and say, this guy never shops. <laughs> so uh, so uh, it was interesting. It, it, was, a, it was a retail business wow. that uh, sold, to, uh, sold to businesses. Reagan, given the arc of the story, it might be easy for folks to lose a sense of time scale. Uh, we haven't mentioned like year marks or age marks, but would you be willing to disclose roughly what age were you coming out of government when you were starting into this you know, next phase in entrepreneurship? Sure. So I, I was 39 and wow. uh, it's interesting. Uh, Matt Kisber and I are 10 years apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both are older fathers. So uh, he's 10 years ahead of me in terms of marriage. So I always look to him uh, and say, all right, where am I going to be in a decade? Look at Matt. <laughs> um, but it was interesting. I had, uh, I had very young kids. Uh-huh. Uh, my my um, oldest was, was three, and, and my youngest uh, was born right as we were starting mm. Silicon Ranch. It's a real commitment. And, and I think if, I, if you ask me a question, what did you not appreciate when you made this decision to start a company? It was 
how all-consuming it becomes if, if you really want to make it work. Mm. And you can't do it alone. Mm. You know, it, it's a, you've got to have buy-in from, from you know, your wife, from your children, mm. from your family, because yeah. uh, it's a heavy lift to start a company. You, and I, I, I love the book, Shoe Dog. You think of Nike, and it just seems like an inevitable success. Mm-hmm. And you read Shoe Dog, and you realize he was struggling a decade in. Like, there were still all of these intense, troubling times, challenges he had to work through. And, and you see how important his mm-hmm. spouse was and his family was through that process. And one thing Matt and I have both had is uh, our, our families have fully bought in to, to this effort. And it's interesting, uh, part of why I love this company and this experience so much is uh, my children are older now, and they're incredibly proud of, mm-hmm. of what we're doing. Uh, you know, my, my kids have both asked me all the time to come speak to their classes oh, about so sweet. Uh, renewables and mm-hmm. the environment, and, um, and they come here a lot. Mm-hmm. This is their second so cool. home. They run around the office. It is amazing to, to look back and uh, think about all of the different sacrifices, but then to realize they were all worth it. When you count, you know, there's the mentors, there's the Governor Brazos, and there's, there's Matt Kisber being my partner, but you really can't get here without, mm-hmm. without your family being yeah. there for you. And in particular, as you mentioned, a spouse who understands the, the vision and is bought in that the sacrifice is worth it, that the, that the, 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 the juice is worth the squeeze. And you know, it's, it, it's interesting because even uh, my wife's an only child and, and, and her parents, uh, I can't tell you how many family vacations we've been on mm. when uh, I've been on the phone oh, yeah. and, and really, <laughs> <Been there>. <laughs> <laughs> really heated discussions and uh, not being a great part mm. uh, of, of the vacation. And, and, you know, her parents have also been incredibly supportive and yeah. understanding. Yeah, been there. Uh, a lot of my clients are there yes. <laughs> right now. They're listening and appreciating this conversation. It brings up another point, and I think this is a really crucial one. We hear all the time, all the stories of Silicon Valley. We're going to come back to Silicon as a, as a theme, but Silicon Valley, the young startup culture of raising money and unicorns. and But it's the vast majority of entrepreneurship does not rest on the shoulders of venture capital and private equity. It rests on the shoulders of hardworking families who reinvest their savings to get a business going, which is why. Nine out of 10 businesses fail after three years. You know, you guys have kept a business going for a decade in an extremely difficult uh, but prosperous time in an extremely difficult industry where the incumbents are very, very willing to squash you. When you decided that you were going to start effectively an energy retail company or an energy development company, take on the establishment of traditional energy, did you have a, a, a thesis on how to fund that operation and I'm asking very specifically at 39, was there a sense of we need this much capital to reach this scale? Or what a lot of people perhaps think is there's no way I'm going to touch my nest egg to start this thing, right? Like help me think through the conversation that you and Kisber were having and perhaps several of your mentors, including Governor Bredesen, were helping you navigate this discussion up front of, of the sense of scale that you wanted to achieve and how to financially get there? You know, when we started, I, I think you, know, you, you talk to all of these people who have been successful in, yeah. in, in, in business, and they all say, if you execute on your business plan, 
there's plenty of money out there. And that is the, at least for me, I was not fully bought into that reality. Yeah. Um, to me, hmm. it was all, I, I, I had been fortunate to always have a good job. My wife's a successful professional. So we had a small nest egg, but it was a very precious one. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so when we started the, the company uh, and we did our, our first series of projects, it was the first renewable energy loans that any of our banking partners had made. And you would have thought we were trying to build a nuclear plant. <laughs> it, they were very, they felt like it was this crazy cutting edge mm-hmm. technology and they didn't know how they would underwrite it. So uh, we had to personally guarantee all of our early projects. It started, our first projects were 200 kW rooftop projects, mm-hmm. but then they grew and they grew. And it, I remember talking to my wife at, at, at one point, I was like, okay, I've guaranteed all of our liquid assets. Wow. Now I'm going to have to guarantee our, our illiquid assets, yeah, basically our house. Mm. And she said, okay, let's do it. We'll be fine. So, you know, it, there was, it was a very satisfying moment as, as, as the company evolved when we were finally able to retire all of the personal mm-hmm. guarantees. All of us were in it together, Matt Kisber, myself, and Governor Bredesen. And, you know, as, as the guarantees grew, quite frankly, there was this period of time where Matt and I were fully leveraged. Yeah. And it really was the governor's balance sheet that, that let us kind of bridge through to true commercialization. Mm-hmm. And uh, not many co-founders would have done that. Yeah. He put a lot of faith in us. And uh, it, uh, I will tell you, one of the happiest days was when I got my personal guarantee off, but uh, the happiest day is when I got Governor is, Bredesen's yeah. off because it just took a tremendous amount of, of pressure off of me as, uh, as, the, as the one responsible for all of our, our loan facilities. So Governor Bredesen pushed the first domino by saying, you and Matt should really go think about what you want to do together. And, and what I was surprised by, and I, I'm grateful for Kelly Pickerel's interview uh, on contractor's corner because it it allowed me to get a sense of the early narrative. And I would, I would encourage folks to listen to that interview because you tell a lot of fun stories as well. One that surprised me was that Governor Bredesen didn't start out on the journey with you. In fact, Matt didn't technically start out on the journey with you. You effectively went out and bid, built the business plan, uh, which candidly, like reading all the things about the company, like you wouldn't find that out. So thank you for disclosing that. But tell me a bit about that first sort of five to six month period. Your wife's bought in. You and Matt have this tentative agreement. And it's mostly, I'm guessing, uh, you know, sort of spit in the palm handshake of like, we're going to do this. And then you've got something that Governor Bredesen goes, wait a minute, this is a thing. Bring me to that moment. Wow. So, uh, you know, it's interesting where I left. uh, My first day at Silicon Ranch was August 5th, 11 years ago. Mm. I left early. The company didn't officially kick into gear until uh, January of the following year. Walking out, uh, I had a check for $250,000, a mandate to get a business plan done, Get a, get a company set up and have everything ready to hit the ground running when Matt Kisber's and Governor Bredesen's time in, time in office ended. Mm-hmm. It was so early. I really spent the time doing a little bit of what you do. Mm-hmm. I, I just reached out to everyone I knew and said, I want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Tell me what it's like you know, yeah. to, to run a business. Tell me what you thought was important, what wasn't. 
and reached out to a lot of unrelated companies and just said, tell me what you think about yeah. renewables. It was very daunting, but also incredibly exhilarating to wake up every day and say, I'm going to go learn something new. Mm. Putting, a, putting the business plan on paper is a very good discipline. It, it was interesting. I, I would draft a, a draft and, and share it with the governor and he would just say, you need to give a little more thought to this. Uh-huh. Give me zero feedback other than give more thought to wow. it. And I've, I've always, I've never asked him. In fact, this interview may make me call him up. I don't even know if he read every draft. He uh. was really just pushing me to say, have you thought as deeply about this yeah. as, as you need to have? Mm-hmm. And then there's just the unglamorous side of setting a business up, you know, get, right. getting so you can do pay, payroll withholding right. tax and setting up an accounting and a phone system. None of that's intuitive. And when you... I was stepping from an organization in state government where I had tremendous administrative support. All of a sudden, too, I had none. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, a, hmm. it, it's something that um, I, I really empathize and admire all entrepreneurs. Yeah. And you totally see uh, how the statistics play out of almost all startups mm-hmm. fail. Yeah. And then you realize why venture capital uh, and private equity funders don't care and say, we want someone that's tried, failed, but they're, they're going to be better the second time because you learn so much going through it the first time. Hmm. It's truly just because it's not successful at, at the first at bat. I guarantee you, you've pocketed a, a, hmm. a lot of lessons that'll pay dividends later. Yeah. And we talked about a little bit this before we started the tape, my four post MBA MBAs, which are effectively <laughs> business failures. And now um, against all odds at like 42, I'm now like invited to be a board member of companies that I respect. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what have I earned? And the answer is like school of hard knocks, like bruises and bumps and scrapes and cuts. It's something that in the middle of the process of fleshing it out, you don't fully appreciate what you're learning. And actually I'm convinced that you don't even have context until you get into maybe the next thing and you go, wait a minute, these guys don't understand this thing's going to happen. And you almost have this ability to future cast, like you see that pattern recognition. I don't want to gloss over, you mentioned a quarter million dollars coming from somewhere. Yeah. So, so that was the initial investment into Silicon Ranch. Okay. And did that come from Governor Bredesen? Came from Governor Bredesen. Wow. Okay. Did, did you and Matt, I hope it's okay with you for me to ask this, but did you and Matt contribute equity in the beginning of the company? Not in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Later we did, and then we, we also guaranteed the, the debt. Right. No, initially the arrangement was uh, we, were, we were all equal partners. Yeah. Matt and I were going to do the, the work, and Governor Bradison was going to do the, the first, so it was a $500,000 commitment. So Was there a moment where he was like, oh, well, no, I'm, I want in? You know, it was more when we were talking about the different opportunities, shared with him the business concept for what became Silicon mm-hmm. Ranch. When he was, you know, the governor is an incredibly savvy businessman. Mm-hmm. I think he has an uncanny ability to say, this is the next big thing. Oh. And he's a real believer, and I've become a, a huge disciple of this too. If you're in the right space mm-hmm. and just feeling around, you're going to have a better chance of success than being in the wrong space with the best idea you could possibly have. His view was, I don't know if your business plan is exactly right, 
but you're in the right space and, and you're asking the right questions. So go quit talking about it and go do right. it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really, um, I think that's really great advice for any, any startup. One neat thing about having mentors is, is everyone's got all of this experience. And it was, it was interesting. Um, the governor would always give me advice and then he'd have a little funny story behind it. And mm. I think that's the best way to internalize that advice. Right. But uh, one of the things we were sitting around in a small windowless conference room and uh, we were saying, what do we want to name this company? The governor said, you know, I've started a lot of successful companies in my life. The hardest, most debated question in every one of them is, and what do we name it? We were all going to make a list and then come back collectively, share our list, and vote to see which, which company name we went with. And it was, it was kind of early in the space. So my list was like solar this, sun that. Mm-hmm. And I was going on the internet to make sure the domain names weren't taken. You're looking for Greek names. <laughs> you're looking for Italian and Latin. So uh, <laughs> it, it was so funny. I, I had... Uh, I, had, I was at the office pinging my list together and, and Matt had gone home. And by the time I drove home, the governor had already called Kisber and said, hey, check your, check your email. Matt called me. He's like, Reagan, check your email. The governor had not only come up with Silicon Ranch, he had designed the logo and emailed it to us. And he's like, don't, you know, don't feel obligated. This is just the, <laughs> the first thing, but I kind of like this one. So we're like, well, that is the company name. And that's the logo. Amazing. And uh, it is funny because I've really become fond uh, of the logo. Yeah. It was everyone loves the name except for First Solar. They don't like that it's silicon. Of course. Was it intentional of Governor Bredesen that the mountain range goes up and to the right? Yes. Yes. He's he's a very thoughtful guy. He's an artist. Yeah. And uh, he's a big fan of the West. So I think the uh, the whole concept of the ranch mm. and then the sun over the mountains, it, mm-hmm. it really... Uh, really speaks to how the opportunity is there. And it's dovetailed so well with our regenerative energy mm-hmm. practices that we've, we've really worked hard to, to uh, roll out for the industry. So uh, I'm very grateful. You know, I, I always tell Governor Bredesen, uh, we have now trademarked the, uh, the Silicon Ranch thing. And he's like, where's my royalty? Yeah. And I was like, it is my friendship and, and, and a never-ending supply of coffee here at the it. office. One of the things that I dwell on as I think about how to help my co-founding clients, I, I mostly work with small companies that are co-founders trying to figure out how to scale their businesses. And it's not always obvious that they're the right co-founder match. What does Kisper offer you in terms of complementary skills? So Matt and I are, I'm a very analytical person. I'm also horrible with names. <laughs> Kisber <laughs> is all about retail, and he's great with names. Politician. And, and uh, he's, you know, he would say a statesman. That's true, uh, of course. And I, and I'll I take would, that back. He's a statesman. I, I would agree with it. I mean, you can't become the youngest legislator in state history, maybe even U.S. history, at 22 without having a, a remarkable amount of charisma and sort of like, uh, I mean, just, yeah, so name recollection. So I, I brought a heavy finance, you know, Tax equity is a big part of, of yeah. the capital stack for, for solar financing. So I, I brought that technical background. I'm an attorney, so I was very, very focused on making yeah. sure our contractual frameworks were correct. <laughs> Matt really had that outward looking, how do we position ourselves in the marketplace? Mm. How do we distinguish ourselves? When we hired Matt Beasley, who's our chief commercial officer, he, he took what 
Matt Kisbert done and took it to the next level. Yeah. Um, and I had a real appreciation that I didn't have before. You can get all the fundamentals right, but if you don't have your story down, yeah. it doesn't matter. It's very easy when you're just starting out to totally focus on your mm-hmm. product and not focus on how you're positioning your product to the mm-hmm. public and what your story is. Yeah. You know, through it all, I think uh, the fact that Matt and I are still dear friends, as, in addition to business partners, it just really speaks to how complimentary and how well we've worked together because uh, there's challenges as you grow a company. And at different time, different people's skill sets monetize in completely different ways. Mm. And you've just got to be comfortable that everybody's contributing in a different way as long as you're advancing the ball toward toward where you want to be. I'm fascinated by having grown up in the South. I'm fascinated that a company like Silicon Ranch came about at the time that it did, a time where the, I mean, it was almost perfect timing. Not that you saw that necessarily, but perfect timing. And as we look back, 2011 was really the inflection point where prices plummeted. Governments were starting to invest across the United States, not just North Carolina and California. And yet the Southeast, where I grew up, seven cent a kilowatt hour electricity seemed like the last bastion, like the last place solar would ever take off. And in retrospect, as I look at the map, and I'll, I maybe I'm going to take a photo of this and, and post it as a part of this blog post, the map of where you all have developed the, the bulkhead uh, or the beachhead of your projects and then the bulk of your volume, it is focused in a territory that most other solar developers thought was near impossible to break into. I come back to what we crafted in part one as this macroeconomic understanding of economic development, the importance of tax incentives, the importance of understanding how government, in particular state government, has and continues to vastly influence the ability for our industry to gain a foothold and scale. But what conviction within the the team, you, Governor Bredesen, Mac Hisber, allowed you and your investors, which is not insignificant, to be the first in Georgia, the first in the Mississippi, candidly, like one of the biggest uh, investors into my home state of South Carolina, as we'll talk about in a minute. Help me understand. I mean, it, it seems to me like a kind of against all odds type of business proposition that if I look back when I was first hearing about Silicon Ranch, I was thinking, how the hell is this Nashville-based company building projects in TVA and and making and then like what's their vision and why aren't they in Arizona? Why aren't they in New Mexico? Why aren't they in California? Why aren't they in Nevada? Help me understand your vision for the Southeast in particular. One thing that both Matt Kisber and I, and under Governor Bredesen's leadership, found uh, the state of Tennessee had a very limited economic development budget. So we, by the constitutionally, we couldn't redirect money to a private company. So. Oftentimes, and, and I think of the, the Volkswagen recruitment, all kinds of states wanted Volkswagens, North American manufacturing plant. Uh, a lot of states just had closing funds where they could say, write you a check for $200 million, put your plant here and spend it how you want. We couldn't do that. We had to say, what can we do uh, given the tools that we have in our toolkit that might be different? And a skill that you learn, and, and this is something that I think People all, it's, it's, such, it's an easy, obvious thing. But we would ask, what is it you're really trying to achieve? And then we may not be able to write you a big check, 
but we've got all these other tools that we can bring to bear to help you achieve your goals. And you know, ultimately, that was a very successful way of, of recruiting industry to our state. And it's how we engage with utility companies early on when it was counterintuitive that solar would be developed here in the Southeast. You know, we've got good solar resource here. We have low power prices, but companies still wanted to have access to renewable electrons. Our view was less partner with the utilities who have all of the established infrastructure, who have the established customer relationships and help them solve that customer need in a way that's a win for all the parties. And that was not the prevailing view of the industry at that point in time. The, the prevailing views where you've got to beat these utilities over the head, you either need to put a, a renewable portfolio standard on them, which a lot of the states out west did, or you need to have puts to them with a QF system like they had in, in North Carolina. So I feel like we developed a skill set very early on of listening to the end customer, the end user, but also sitting down with utility companies and saying, how can we solve this, this issue in a way that works for everyone involved? Frankly, some of the, some of the structure of our PPAs was 100% geared toward how do we make this work economically in a way that can be financed under the investment tax credit in a way that lets Silicon Ranch get the returns that it needs. So the collaborative nature and being, um, being very disciplined with our capital. I think sometimes um, one of the things that is wrong with a lot of startup companies, they get too much capital right up front and they're just not disciplined with it. And they think it's always gonna be easy to raise that next round. We really started our company, capital was precious. Uh, it was the capital of people we knew that I would see. <laughs> and uh, we, we treated it like that precious resource. So we were very intentional. And early on, we did some incredibly creative things. We leveraged new market tax credits. We leveraged insurance tax credits. We did financing structures that uh, won national awards because of their creativity. As we scaled, that became more difficult. But um, it shows you that if you really focus on what your end game is, which is solving the problem for your customers and your partners, you can, you can start solving everything else at the same time. You've been able to unlock markets that others have arguably tried very hard and sort of come into and float out of. You mentioned TVA early on, developers were here and then they were gone and now they're trying to come back. But one of the cornerstones of your development thesis is lean into and develop the cooperative utilities, the, the cooperative model of energy generation and distribution. Can you tie that back to sort of the core philosophy of Silicon Ranch as a community development organization, an economic development organization? And why do co-ops marry to the vision of the company in a way that maybe traditional IOUs don't? Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll start with TVA, but you threw them out first. Sure. It's our, our home utility. So uh, you know, TVA was really built on a three-legged stool of low-cost, reliable power, flood control, and very importantly, economic development as part of their core mission. And our approach with TVA was, even when they really stepped back from procuring renewables and most of the industry left the state, Silicon Ranch stayed very involved. I mean, our, 
our chief commercial officer was the head of Tennessee. There was one point where we were almost the entire membership of, <laughs> of Tennessee. And uh, we kept telling TVA, you need to stay engaged in the solar space because ultimately it's an economic development tool. If you're going to recruit the type of industry to the valley that you, you want, you're going to have to create tools around renewable energy or you're just not going to be successful. And that collaboration, I like to think that we had a role in crafting some very successful programs that TVA has rolled out and that allowed them to recruit the Googles and the Facebooks and now the Amazons and the Oracles. We stayed engaged. If you don't take a long-term partnership collaborative view, you would have never invested those years of constant dialogue. And uh, to TVA's credit, a lot of the individuals that are leading the procurement efforts now and that are lauded at these conferences, they sat up on panels and just took nothing but abuse for years yeah. from the industry. Uh, sometimes I would say even crossing the line to, to the point of disrespect for someone who's working in a public power company. And I think you don't do that when you take a partnership longer-term view. Yeah. For the co-ops... You know, they serve the supermajority of the real estate in the country. And I'm from the Southeast. You're from the Southeast. I think the, you know, rural co-ops basically serve the majority of, of, yeah. of our part of the world. That's right. In a lot of communities, the co-op is, you know, they also host, they've got the conference center for the entire community. Yeah. They're member-owned. They're mission-driven. And economic development and quality of life is a part of the reason for their existence. So... Our view of becoming members of the community where we invest, of long-term collaborative partnership and, and improving the communities where we build our projects align so perfectly with the cooperative mission, vision, and value. I always say, you know, I, I will do business with the investor-owned utilities, but anytime I have to choose how to allocate my resources, we're going to focus on, on the co-ops because there's such an alignment of what I think our industry can deliver, uh, how I want to create value at Silicon Ranch, mm -hmm. and how important it is to improve the communities where we build, that um, I, I'm just, the co-ops are the right partners to do that, and TVA is a great partner to do that as well. In our previous conversation, for those who are following sequentially, uh, this is part two of our conversation, you referred to the way that economic development was attempted in your home state of Louisiana, uh, the negative externalities of oil and gas. I've heard you use a term that I'm not sure was necessarily coined by you. Perhaps it was, if so, genius again to your marketing team's credit and, and Governor Bredesen, of regenerative energy. C can you help me understand how Silicon Ranch is contributing to positive externalities in the community you just mentioned, how does regenerative energy work in practice? What does it mean? Do you own the term? Is it trademarked? <laughs> it, it actually is. And, uh, and I, I give a lot of credit to, uh, there's, there, we have a lot of Matts in our company. Matt Kisler is my <laughs> co-founder and the chairman of our board. And Matt Beasley is our chief commercial officer. And uh, Matt Beasley was with me when we, when we first went to White Oak Pastures and uh, learned about the regenerative ranching movement in the mm. food space. And I know you're a Michael Pollan fan. I'm yeah. a big Michael Pollan fan. We went down really because uh, we do a lot of business with the co-ops in Georgia. We had bought a piece of land uh, where we were going to put a large solar facility, not even knowing that there was a, 
a regenerative rancher wow. uh, right next door to us. And the regenerative rancher had read about our project in the media, had reached out to the co-ops and said, I want to I want to meet these guys. We, we have to talk. <laughs> we have to talk some shop. Yeah. Uh, he was concerned we were going to be using herbicides and pesticides next to his yeah. ranch that had been operating in a regenerative way for over two decades. What does it mean to have a regenerative ranch? So it is a it is a movement where it's not just organic. You're truly managing the land and your livestock in a way that you're improving. You're regenerating the quality of the soil. Yeah. And um, improving the land, not just maintaining the quality of the land. Sure. So it's more than we're not using these negatives. It's we're doing things I that actually it. improve it. I get it. Pollen does it in his book. Uh, talks with Joel Salatin, who uh, obviously it's is polyface. Yeah, yeah. Another polyface. another big. Uh, uh, another well-known name in that yeah, space. In the region. Okay, so I'm connecting the dots here now. And so in a maybe in a phrase, how does Beasley describe uh, regenerative energy in that regard? So we talk about it as we are generating renewable energy, mm-hmm. uh, taking the sun and, and turning it into renewable electrons. But we're not capturing... Um, all of the sunlight, a lot of it's hitting the ground. And we have a, another opportunity. We can regenerate the soil that, uh, is, that our solar rays are covering. Yeah. So by managing the land, and, and we're a big landowner, and this yeah. industry is going to own millions of acres mm-hmm. or at least manage millions mm-hmm. of acres sure. over time. We said we have a responsibility to not just maintain the land. We want to improve the land where we're putting our projects. So we have built a whole team out and uh, continue to refine the practices and make them available to others where we regeneratively manage the land that we own in a way that we're sequestering more carbon, improving the quality of the plant life, managing it in a way that impacts the ag community in in the areas where we locate. And it's uh, one of the more rewarding activities that I've been involved in. It's funny, I I looked at my bedside table this morning and I was getting up and uh, kind of a serial reader. So I always have a stack of books over there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, three of them are on regenerative farming. Wow. One's on how to be a better manager. And then one's my to-do list, which was at the bottom. <laughs> so it's, um, I'm completely intrigued with this, uh, this movement. Because while what we're doing in the power sector is very necessary, mm-hmm. uh, we also need to really be looking at the agricultural sector and say mm-hmm. how... How can industrial farming improve its environmental impact? And uh, I think regenerative practices are going to be a big part of that. And the fact that I sit in a chair and this company sits in a chair where we can both uh, advance renewable energy Mm -hmm. and regenerative land management is, uh, I think, the best of both worlds. So as I mentioned, part of the impetus for and the opportunity to come to Nashville and sit down with you is that you have accomplished in many ways, like the, the impossible task of keeping a company open for 10 years and not just open, but scaling. We'll talk a bit about the scale in a moment, but 10 years of progress is a remarkable milestone. First of all, congratulations. I'd love to hear, what have you learned about the energy business over the last decade that you would love to tell your 39-year-old self? What I've come to appreciate in, in my experience is... Um, Change is stressful for everybody. Mm. I have a personality where I embrace change. It excites (laughs) me and it makes me think about what the opportunities are. Mm -hmm. The utility industry for a very long time 
has been an industry without much change. It was all about finding operational efficiencies. So people who went into the power industry historically did that because it was a safe, steady career that uh, had a rewarding profession. You could work at it for 30 years. It's one of the few things where with a lot of them you could retire with a pension. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I appreciated early on, I was such an advocate of, of this, this, is, this change is coming, it's a, it's a triple net benefit, get excited about it. I don't think I had enough empathy always for the person sitting on the other side of the table for me at the utility company who viewed this energy revolution as a challenge to, to the career that they had entered into. Hmm. They didn't get into that space to embrace change. Yeah, I think had uh, I would have been a little more patient in some of my meetings had I had I had a bit more empathy and insight about um, what this what I viewed as an opportunity could be viewed as a as a threat by others. Yeah, and and it clearly is now in hindsight. You shared a fantastic story. We'll see if maybe we can get the the script notes version of that of a conference you went to where it was illustrative of that point, a CFO was speaking right before you. Would you share a bit of that story? And- sure. I was, uh, I was invited to, a, um, to a, an industry conference where uh, it was really limited to the, the executives of power and utility companies. I was there as a guest speaker. And it was actually a closed-door session, but I got to come in early to hear the presenter before me who was talking to them about changes going on in the space. And and sitting in the back room of a a large conference center, I was looking at the audience, and it's it's, it's predominantly male audience, all executives at at power companies. The age in the room probably averaged out in the early 60s. And they were talking about, this was still early, kind of middle of the solar journey. Solar was just starting to become very cost competitive with fossil-based fuels across the, the country. It was really the first instance where I, I, I saw these uh, people kind of feeling free to discuss. They worked at probably one of the best employers in their community. They were viewed as community leaders. They had good jobs and all of them had retirement. You know, the vast majority of them, I would say, had retirement probably less than 10 years into the future. I really appreciated there was a sentiment that they didn't want to hear the cost curves on solar are coming down much quicker than anyone anticipated. This is going to be happening. This change is coming to your your geography sooner than you anticipated. It was really everybody was hoping, we think solar is a good thing, but I don't want it to happen on my watch. It can happen after. We can do a couple of demonstration projects. It was real eye-opening, and it helped me to understand how we as an industry need to collaboratively work with our co-op partners and our utility partners, because it is a challenge. They've got legacy fossil facilities that are not cost competitive. They've got a lot of debt on those facilities. So it's, it's, a, big, it's a big change, and we're going from a centralized power generation concept based on fossil fuels to a distributed generation concept based on renewables. It's going to take a lot of thought leadership, a lot of collaboration. And uh, I'm not sure our side of the industry, the renewable side, has truly embraced the the partnership with the traditional power side. Yeah, let that story sink in. You know, we didn't talk about economics. 
knowing roughly the time period, I imagine some of these projects were being pulled across the finish line at somewhere in the 70 to $80 megawatt hour range. And I could almost imagine sitting in that room and you can almost hear the sound of that gold watch hitting the floor, right? That 30-year target, their career careening off the perilous edge of where the hell is this industry going and how are we going to keep up? It's fascinating to think about and I really appreciate and I hope that folks are paying attention to the intention with which you're communicating right now that as an industry, we have an opportunity to either burn or build bridges, right? Without a doubt. This change is inevitable, but it can be much smoother if if we really work in collaboration to invest wisely as we transition our, our energy infrastructure. Hey, wanna protect your margins and get projects over the line fast? Look, we all know solar development teams waste millions of dollars every year on inefficient development. We both know that the old school methods of engaging with stakeholders, collaborating on documents, and even pitching investors is literally starving you of the one thing that you won't get back, time. You need greater velocity in your deals that only comes from tried and true duplicatable processes so your margins aren't constantly under attack. And in an increasingly competitive marketplace where even big oils getting in on the green gold rush, the right software will help keep your team focused and in control of what really matters. Lucky for you, Enian Project Manager is purpose-built software made for developers by developers. Sign up for free now and start moving faster with software made just for you. Go to enian.co and see what Enian Project Manager can do for you. That's E-N-I-A-N dot C-O. I'm curious, you know, you guys are sitting on two and a half gigawatts of pipeline and built projects and to-be-built projects. As you look out on the landscape for the next 10 years, what really excites you the most about the possibilities? Well, first, I want to say it's, uh, it's over three and a half gigawatts. Fantastic. I, I stand <laughs> so, correct. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and growing at a, at a pace that surprises, I, I think, everyone who's not intimately involved yeah. in, in the industry. I've always said from my, my work scholastically, from my experience, uh, we don't deal well with exponential change. Yeah. We're, we're very linear in our thinking just as, as a species almost. And mm-hmm. I think... Um, the growth that this industry is experiencing, nobody's prepared for. Yeah. I really think that's the challenge of all the industry mm-hmm. is to, to really wrap their arms around how quickly we're scaling and, and the magnitude of what we have to accomplish together uh, to continue to scale successfully. Because um, our challenge will be if as a whole we start failing and delivering these facilities the way that we've committed to deliver them. This industry has been bailed out, I think, time and time again by cost de-escalation happening much quicker than anyone yeah. ever. So if you, if you made a bad bet, <laughs> really interesting you probably got bailed out with time. Yeah, you know, There's not as much room for that to continue to happen. And, and we've, we've used a lot of the low-hanging fruit from an interconnection standpoint, yeah. from an easy-to-build permitting standpoint. Yeah. And I think the... Uh, the industry is growing quicker as things become a bit more difficult. So we all are going to have to sharpen our game a mm-hmm. bit. 
I think you'll see some of the cats and dogs that have managed to to find a home. Mm. I, I think you'll start to see the industry become more institutionalized as, as we go forward. Mm. Funny you should mention that. I'll come back to the idea of institutionalizing the industry and the bridges that we're building. But first, I want to return to a previous piece of our conversation, someone that we both admire who's built a brand that anyone would recognize by its mark alone, Nike and Phil Knight. You talked about getting to that 10-year point and Phil Knight disclosing in his book, at least, that he's still struggling to, to make things work. They're, they're against all odds, like Nike still had a lot of uphill climb to do. And uh, I wonder, you know, we can sit here and celebrate the last 10 years, but at the 10-year mark, is there anything that you are particularly, and maybe you and Kisber are struggling to wrap your arms around and, and we as an industry need to be thinking about? It took us almost six years to contract our first gigawatt of pipeline. Mm. We're going to contract over a gigawatt, probably maybe even you know, two gigawatts this year. Mm. The scale of what you have to do is changing so rapidly. And how do you build a robust organization that can handle that rapid scaling? This is a young industry. So it's interesting, all... Um, Every one of our employees in certain skill sets mm-hmm. are recruited daily by other players in the space. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, that, that can only work so well for so long. That's right. uh, at some point, we've got to start developing a pipeline of talent. Hmm. And, and I think we've probably not done a good job because uh, developing talent takes time, mm-hmm. takes failing. And all of us have such aggressive growth targets. Yeah. The easy button is higher from your competitor. Your competitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to grow the base. I love that answer. We talked privately about my belief that we have a human capital problem in the energy business broadly. What are your thoughts at Silicon Ranch about the bridge that we could be building to our friends who, like the utility industry, thought they had that 30-year career track and a gold watch at Chevron or Shell or BP, and they suddenly find themselves as stranded assets? One thing I love about sitting in this chair is focusing on building out the team is, has become very important. And I always tell people, if, if you talk to investors or partners, they're like, what's your pipeline? What's your contracted cash flows? I always say, what's our team look like? I was like, the team is still the value of what we've built. The assets, you know, at our growth rate, this will be, this asset base will be quite small versus what this team will deliver in the future. Some of the most successful things that we've done have been creating channels to bring talent into our organization. So the, the veteran programs have been incredibly successful. I think it would be interesting to create a pipeline. You know, all of the traditional fossil companies have been downsizing as they prepare for an energy transition to, frankly, a lower margin business. The power business is lower margin than the fossil business. Something like the veterans program where you bring these uh, skilled individuals who have had to solve complex problems, uh, bring them into the industry would be a very meaningful undertaking. It's something, uh, I don't know of an official channel that's out there that's doing it yet. We've danced around a topic that, for those of us in the industry, are very well aware that Silicon Ranch has, uh, you've raised a lot of money. You've built a lot of projects. You 
have through the tenure of the 10 years of building this platform, as we call it in the industry, had some very good institutional partners as investors. Yet in, I think it was late 2018, early 2019, Shell, global oil and gas organization, invested heavily into Silicon Ranch. Can you help those of us who kind of look at that and think, on the one hand, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what's going on there, like why that makes sense for Silicon Ranch or Shell. Um, two, um, there have there are folks who, no matter who you are, like when LightSource you know, sold part of their business or, all, or most of it to BP, would say, oh, they're selling out to oil and gas. It's the easy pipeline. What's your response to the ability to scale, like we've talked about for the last 15, 20 minutes, by partnering with a global organization like Shell? So I'm a firm believer. I, I told you, I, I think people always think of linear growth and not exponential growth and what the industry needs to do. We gave a lot of thought. If, if you listen to the, the Contractor Corners podcast, mm-hmm. uh, we talked to Shell for a year before we pulled the trigger on that transaction because we had very good capital partners. You know, Partners Group was an investor in Silicon Ranch, a Swiss-backed pension fund. We had great board members from Partners Group and a really good access to mm-hmm. inexpensive capital with them. We partnered with Shell for strategic reasons. Yeah. And I think, much like I said, uh, if, I, if I looked back and could have changed something with, with my younger self, it would have been having a bit more empathy for the people on the other side of the table mm-hmm. in, the, in the utility space who, who viewed this sea change as, as a threat and not an opportunity. Uh, I would say, while the leadership of these oil and gas companies are all saying the right things, they're like the Department of Revenue, there's a whole infrastructure of tens of thousands of people below them that uh, didn't sign up for this change. Mm -hmm. They they signed up for a career with an oil and gas company that's very well respected, and, and, and I'm sure they were the top of their class. So you've got to earn and and bring not just the leadership along, because I think they're there. Uh, You've got to bring the tens of thousands of team members along. I always think that's better done in collaboration than uh, than trying to club them over the head with uh, bad publicity or with. Yeah. Um, so, so to me, all of these endeavors, the, the scale of a shell versus the scale of the entire solar industry, <laughs> shell dwarfs it. Yeah. So, being able, I view shell as uh, having a lot of tools in a toolkit that I could not develop myself, even if I had five years and limitless money. I think that is a huge strategic advantage as we try to meet the needs of these customers that are driving change that dwarf Shell. I mean, the customers moving our our industry forward are still the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks. Mm -hmm. If you don't have scale, uh, you can't meet their needs. While I can appreciate the ambitious entrepreneurial vision, I'm going to just play the devil's advocate here and say, how are the small scrappy team relatively of Silicon Ranch really going to impact an overall like, you know, sort of uh, indoctrinate or influence a big organization like Shell versus the, the, the opposite, right? Like how do you as the CEO avoid Shell effectively influencing the way you operate rather than you giving them an opportunity to learn how the new economy operates. So we were quite purposeful in our engagement with Shell. So Shell's a major 
owner of Silicon mm-hmm. Ranch, but they're a minority owner. Mm-hmm. They're very open to, frankly, understanding that this transition's happening. Mm-hmm. It's happening quicker than they anticipated, too. They're, yeah. they're right in the set. They're brilliant people. Yeah. They've got an incredible scenario planning group. But uh, I think the change in this industry is happening faster than anyone would have guessed. And if you ever interview a guest that says, no, I knew this was happening, I yeah. want to meet them and get <laughs> yeah. us on a panel together. So if you think about it, this is a 100-plus-year-old company, and you can kind of stack all the, the, the traditional oil companies in this category. They're dividend companies. They're sitting here with a business model that's worked incredibly well for an incredibly long time. They're part of probably all of our IRAs and 401ks, whether we know it or not, if we're invested in index funds. They know they need to change. They lack, uh, they're built, all of these companies are built to accomplish complex projects while mitigating risk and promoting safety. They're very responsible companies. Mm -hmm. This is not that industry. You know, we, we talked a little bit about decision velocity. This is an industry where you have got to make decisions, execute on your game plan, and then be ready to pivot. Just the oil and gas companies aren't built for that. Mm-hmm. They are, I think, uh, and it was interesting, I was just talking to James Brooks yesterday, who uh, was with uh, BP Light Source and, and joined mm-hmm. Shell not that long ago. It is a sea change for all of these traditional companies, what they're doing. Uh, They're all doing it at varying levels of success, Mm -hmm. and they're very different business models. Yeah. And I think uh, if you're not in the tent, in partnership, and validating, you know, the good thing, Silicon Ranch was a good fit for Shell, because we have a safety culture. Yeah. We have, you know, our values are on the wall, and they're very aligned mm-hmm. with Shell's stated values, mm-hmm. and we didn't change those. Those were our values from the founding of the company. Yeah. We can help pull them along. Is it hard to, is it hard to, to, to get Shell to adjust? Mm-hmm. Well, they're a, they're a giant battleship. Mm-hmm. Yes, right, it's, yeah. it's hard, but there's commitment at the top. We engage as, as, a, as a relatively small company vis-a-vis Shell. We engage with the very senior leadership of right. Shell. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you they're committed to succeeding, and they've got to in this energy transition. Mm-hmm. I think all these companies are trying to figure out how do they integrate. And, and this will be the sea change that I really think uh, the second any of these companies can really put all the pieces together, yeah. you're really going to see the power of partnership. Yeah. You've not seen it. BP hasn't done it. Total has none of these companies have figured out the full integration and, and solution uh, offering, yeah. but we will figure it out. And uh, when you do, we're going to be able to offer products that are going to become like the iPhone. It's just going to be I the easy it. button for the, for the companies out there that want to procure renewables. For those who are unfamiliar, just a little bit of history and context. In 2018, not just Shell, but BP and others went on a buying spree. It was the year of M&A of platforms by the oil and gas industry, by and large, by traditional energy, we'll say. About the same time they bought a minority stake in you guys for $217-ish million, as reported, they also invested to acquire British Platform, sort of following British Petroleum's lead or BP, roughly around the same. I mean, the dollar amount is remarkably similar. BP invests about $200 million in light source. They buy first utility for $200 million. They invest $217 million with you all for about a 44% stake. 
And at the same time, it's amazing. The war chest they have, it's unbelievable. They're, they're acquiring green lots. They're investing in storage. They're, they're expanding the R&D, like their ability to assimilate technology and make decisions at a rate that like baffles most development platform companies. So I wanted to like just have folks really understand that this is not like a 2021 conversation. This has been happening since 2014, 2015, 2017, 2018, where the the traditional energy business who effectively launched the renewable energy business and suppressed it 35 years ago has seen this the sea change, has invested. I, I, I say that also so that folks can really comprehend like – of the U.S. traditional platforms, you guys are against all odds, like such a legitimate player that the companies that BP and Shell are acquiring overseas are for like majority stake is a minority stake in your business. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm over, uh, I'm, I'm, and sometimes I'm like, look at this going, this is a remarkable statement about what Silicon Ranch has been able to accomplish. And I think it goes back to the concept that we've alluded to without having to get into your shorts on like what your RFP strategy and things like that are around economic development. Again, I just applaud you at your ability to preserve the momentum and the equity returns for your initial investors, for your team, in a way that a company that we've watched acquire many of our friends' companies, right, in whole or in part, would say, we believe so much in your platform that we are going to uh, that we want to be a part of it. We just want to play in your space, right? And and you are now a major foothold back into, sort for a European-based company, back into the United States market. What does that say about, uh, from BP and Shell, about the U.S. market as a, a foothold, as a global bellwether for what's happening in the renewables and the clean energy transition? Shell has committed to reaching C0 by 2050. Mm-hmm. They've put nearer-term goals mm-hmm. uh, on as well and tied executive compensation to it. If the way they're accounting scope one, two, and three, mm-hmm. Shell accounts for 3% of global carbon emissions. Mm. Wow. That is uh, an incredible number. So you're going to see Shell doing a lot of different things, but in order to, they're still going to be a fossil company. Mm-hmm. So as they, tradi- as they transition to being a, a power company, and they've, they've done this branding change, Renewable Power Solutions, yeah. you can't hit the scale that they need to hit mm-hmm. without being majorly successful in the U.S. marketplace. And they've got the infrastructure with their trading platform in Houston, uh, Sina, to really facilitate meaningful scale mm-hmm. in the U.S. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a tax guy, uh, to the extent we've gotten something right around energy policy in the U.S. I think the investment tax credit is a much better vehicle for promoting solar deployment mm. than a feed-in tariff. Because in a feed-in tariff in this industry, you're always going to get that number wrong. You overpay and you create a flood of projects, then you shut it down, mm-hmm. and it creates an ebb and flow uh, mentality of deployment. I, th- I think the ITC was brilliant in that it benchmarks off of capital cost. 
the way that it's administered really through lending institutions and tax equity providers, you kind of do some built-in quality checks on the whole process because no one wants to put tax equity into a bad project. Mm -hmm. So um, I do think we've gotten that right as a country and it makes the U.S. a unique investment case globally for, uh, for solar deployment and wind deployment for yeah. that matter. Coming back to the markets that you've intentionally invested in, historically red markets, uh, Republican-led, why do you think that traditional red states like Texas, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida, South Carolina are starting to, and, and even Tennessee, starting to lead the renewables revolution in the United States? And, and um, yeah, what do you think about that? So one thing you learn very quickly in politics is uh, economic development is the one thing both parties agree on mm -hmm. across the board. The biggest challenge in every state in the country is rural economic development. The cities almost across the board in urban areas are, are doing well. It's really the, the rural part of America that, that's struggling from an economic development perspective. The fact that solar can be a part of the solution for supporting rural economic development speaks incredibly well across political lines. And we, from day one, have focused on the economic development impact of our investments and our long-term partnership approach, much more so than we focused on the environmental aspects of the offering. You know, those are there, but what we talk about is our positive impact on communities. And, and that has worked well with, with both parties. And I think is really why you're seeing solar development have such great success in a lot of these red states. I don't want to leave out uh, a context that I introduced because I'm from South Carolina about how hard it is to develop in markets where traditional energy has a foothold, co-ops uh, have to wrap their heads around how this works for them, especially in an economic environment where the wholesale cost of power and the avoided cost of power is so low traditionally so let's take South Carolina as an example. I want to ask a couple of questions around that, and you can use it as a model. So it was recently announced, I think, 425, 450 megawatts of awards, of which you guys got a, a large portion of it. I don't know if it was a lion's share. And I understand that there's probably more opportunity to come, not just in South Carolina, but the Southeast. South Carolina as a, uh, a state that is you know, partially divided into Duke territory and Santee Cooper as an electric cooperative has a lot of different influences a lot of things that you have to navigate to really understand developing or putting together a, a campaign, a development thesis. How did Silicon Ranch approach that state uh, differently than competitors that perhaps gave you uh, a foothold and advantage? And how long, for, for those who don't understand it at all, how long for context does something like that take? We look at all, all the different markets and uh, take a view on what do we bring to the table that's unique that can position us for success there. One thing that, um, as you know, South Carolina is very close to, it's our backyard. Uh, the co-ops serve a lot of that service territory. They were, uh, like Georgia Power and, and some of the Georgia co-ops, they were building one of the, the last, I say the last, they were building an effort on a, on a large nuclear power plant that was having cost overruns and issues. Um, we knew Economic developments happening in South Carolina is one of those rapidly growing mm -hmm. states. Large agricultural um, state as well. Large agricultural state. So we um, had been uh, talking to them, frankly, as a resource about how to think of solar 
as an economic development tool. And what we did with some of our partners in Georgia is we actually proactively drafted an entire toolkit, kind of leveraging some of our tools from when we were in state government and economic development, and, and, and gave it to our utility partners and said, here's your solar renewable energy economic development toolkit. So uh, through that work in Georgia, we were introduced to the, to the co-ops in South Carolina who were very curious to learn more about our approach. They basically said, you know, we're, we're not there yet, but we're interested in, in solar. It's going to be part of our future. And this was four or five years ago that we were having these discussions. So we started um, basically trying to serve as a resource, uh, both to their economic development teams and, and to the utilities, waited for the whole Santee Cooper nuclear issue to kind of play through. But we also, um, as a, as a long-term developer, owner, operator, we really like to own the real estate. It's, it's kind of part of what distinguishes us from a lot of our competitors. So we, when we were talking to the South Carolina co-ops, started looking for and signing purchase options for large tracts of land next to good transmission. When the time came, uh, so after you know, four years of dialogue, developing these these real estate assets and filing the interconnection agreements, when the opportunity uh, came for them to do some procurement, uh, you referenced 450 megawatts. Silicon Ranch got almost half of that. And I think there's going to be, it's going to be a new emerging market. South Carolina is, um, it's got a lot of attributes that businesses are looking for. And uh, renewables is going to play a really large role. And I think you've seen out the nuclear plant's probably not going to come online. So there's actual power supply issues too. And And it's getting (laughs) rate-based. To boot. (laughs) To boot, yes. Well, uh, uh, that's, you know, it's interesting. We've, I always tip my hat and say, uh, while TVA was getting pounded by the by the solar industry mm-hmm. for for not procuring solar during this period, their CEO did bring on successfully one of the only nuclear power plants that had been successfully yeah. brought on in, wow. the, in the past decade. So uh, they were focused on what they needed to be focused on because uh, that would have been a bit expensive failure had they had they not done that. Yeah, having grown up in the era where large companies like BMW and Caterpillar were attracted to South Carolina on the premise of not only the economic development incentives, but also the very cheap power to manufacture. And through the lens of this conversation, it makes complete sense to me. And for those of you who've listened for a long time, you'll start to tie together really important pieces. So all the way back in January, we talked to Sheldon Kimber, someone who's had tremendous success as well, building infrastructure where he talked about the need, the mandate as a society to drive electric power costs as close to zero as possible so that we can scale at home and not depend on other countries so that we can reduce the amount of logistics, so we can reduce the amount of CO2 embedded in the carbon embedded in our products. The opportunity that opens for oper- for jobs in South Carolina, the opportunity that opens for manufacturing that's attracted to the Southeast broadly. I think that a lot of folks in the general, like I'll, I'll say like at the surface level of development game that maybe don't have the uh, economic development government office e- experience, don't necessarily see some of the things that are moving at the macroeconomic levels that make this all make sense. I recently had a conversation with Ram Ambadapudi, who's at EB Connect, but he was the guy who basically, you remember, he led Chevron's solar development almost three gigawatts of power. And he said that the strength of Chevron 
And his strategy was to get designed in. And that's exactly the process that you all engaged in with your counterparts in South Carolina by giving them a playbook and effectively showing them here is some criteria you may want to consider and benefits that could come through this criteria. And I I would imagine there's an incredible amount of modeling that goes in to all that as well. Thank you for sharing that because it's, it's so hard to be able to see behind the veil or inside what we often refer to as the black box of like how at an economic level, this all starts to make sense, right? I want to touch on one more point that is in the zeitgeist right now before I move into sort of the learning leadership and legacy and wrap up the conversation. Uh, And I'd be remiss not to ask because you're a part of Shell, because there's such an investment by oil and gas into the multiplicity of ways that energy is, is, is generated, harvested, stored, delivered. Do you have, and I haven't asked you this before, so it may fall flat, but do you have a thesis on, or do you have a, a vision towards how hydrogen and the topic of green hydrogen might play into the macroeconomic uh, influence that renewables is able to, to push forward? So we're fortunate in the solar space to be able to compete on a purely economic basis mm-hmm. today anywhere in the U.S. So the fact that we bring all of these ancillary benefits is is just a huge positive. Hydrogen is still very very much where solar was maybe 10 years ago. It needs some support. But I do think there's an integral role uh, for hydrogen as part of our energy transition. And I think uh, you need the players that have the balance sheets like the right. like the oil and gas companies mm-hmm. to be leaders in in that mm-hmm. in that development. So um, it's interesting. You know, Shell's brought some successful green hydrogen on in Europe. I think uh, I think they're they're really looking to to replicate that in the U.S. Mm-hmm. They would sit. I don't want to put myself in Shell's shoes, but I think I think they would say the market needs to send a market signal that it's you know those are big capital expenditures. Right. Uh, so we either need to do that through government policy mm-hmm. or the economics need to need to shift. But there's a real opportunity to get in front of where the green hydrogen facilities are going to be and mm-hmm. think about how do we power those with renewable electrons right. generated by low-cost solar energy. So there's a huge synergy there for us going forward. Non-obvious for several folks who maybe don't understand how all this works. What would the green hydrogen be used for? You know, it's a great energy storage Okay. vehicle. You know, it could be, I don't think it'll ever be part of, uh, you know, I think electric has won the game for passenger transportation, mm-hmm. but for uh, commercial vehicles, hydrogen could be a solution, uh-huh. especially uh, 18-wheeler truck transportation. And uh, it's a good storage of, of energy. So we're going to need that. Uh, you know, it's portable, the, the, the challenge right. with electricity is it's got to be consumed as it's generated. Mm-hmm. So having these vehicles like hydrogen can that can be it. clean yeah. and, uh, and, and converted is, is going to be a meaningful tool in the toolkit. Yeah, I would encourage folks to go back and listen to the conversations that we had with Fluence as well, how they think about the virtual uh, transmission. Uh, I think that plays a little bit in here. To think about it at a meta, at a meta level, how energy is transformed and reused. Because when we hypothesize about uh, renewables uh, and when actually, when we go back to the, like, so the traditional fossil fuel saying, oh, the problem with renewables is they're intermittent. Technology around green hydrogen as one example gives us the ability to convert the energy in the similar way that historically 
and certainly countries in Latin America will, will uh, appreciate this, we've done through physical properties like water being pumped uphill or stored in a reservoir, right? So I'd encourage you all to think about it and, um, and we'll explore the topic of green hydrogen further here on Suncast. I really appreciate that answer. And I, and I don't expect that you're going to give me sort of the shell position or, or perhaps even the, the, the playbook. But just what you've talked about for me is illustrative of where, uh, sort of like you said, where is this positioned relative to what we can exercise today, what we can put into the ground today? And, and I think that's what's taken traditional energy, put them on their heels is just how quickly comparative to nuclear you can deploy these assets. And the question becomes, okay, well, if I can deploy them this quickly, why would I take 15 years to develop uh, a, an alternative energy generation system? Let's turn to that stack of literature on your nightstand. I know that you're a voracious reader. You talked a bit about what you're reading right now. Instead of what's on your nightstand, I'd love to hear, uh, we believe that reading, uh, that leaders are readers and that uh, we can we can glean insights from what others have learned and distilled into wisdom and left over the generations. Is there a particular book or maybe a, a couple of them that either you've gifted the most or have impacted you particularly about in the way that you approach work or life generally? I do give books uh, a lot as gifts, but it's uh, tends to be very temporal. If, if I read something and, and find it interesting, uh-huh. I think of the friend uh-huh. who might share that interest. And Matt Beasley, who I've mentioned several times, yeah. it's interesting because uh, every once in a while I get, get, get a package from Amazon <laughs> and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> and uh, he's done the same. I he sent it. me a book that he just read that he thought would be pertinent. I love it. I mean, I, I think that's a, a great sign of uh, that you're thinking of somebody. Mm-hmm. If, if you read a book and you say, this book is right, for this friend, uh, that that's a great thing to do, and and I always encourage people give great great gifts. Yeah. Um, What's a book that you sent, Matt? You know, it is interesting. I have not sent uh, probably Dirt to Soil would be the last book I gave him, and I don't think he took it out of his office. Ah. But it was really it was on regenerative energy. Uh-huh. It was written by uh, Gabe. I'm going to get his last name wrong, but uh, he's a, a friend of Will Harris's at White mm-hmm. Oak Pastures. It really talked about how he used regenerative ranching to improve his soil, create a more resilient ecosystem on the ag side. Mm-hmm. Matt's my partner in crime on helping mm-hmm. us uh, flush out our regenerative energy land management practices. So I was like, you got to read this so we can talk about it. Gabe Brown, we'll link to it in the in the show notes. Any book that, as you think about, like maybe uh, Governor Bredesen or someone else recommended to you, or you read that unlocked something for you about the way business is done or helped you think more clearly about leadership or CEO position? I referenced Shoe Dog earlier. And uh, I thought, one, I was very surprised that Phil Knight was so thoughtful and and honest in his writing. Uh, And then two, it was very insightful to me of how long a journey it was before he crossed this period where Nike was an unstoppable machine. That really helped me feel better because 10 years feels like a, a while. You know, I've, we've been at this and, yeah. and you can either say, man, um, I'm tired. Or in my case, I'm more excited today than I was when we started the company because we've solved a lot of the, we've answered a lot of the questions that I had early on. Mm-hmm. And now there's just this field of opportunity. It's like, how do I take what I learned it's almost like that second startup company yeah. because I, I really feel like the space has changed so much. So um, I, I do recommend that. And then uh, it's interesting, I uh, read uh, a book 
boys in the boat. And it's just about being part of a part of a crew team. And it really it's not a leadership book. It's it's a it's a it's a biography. But the whole thing of how this this group of individuals came together, um, trained together, and eventually won Olympic gold against all odds, and building that teamwork and camaraderie mm-hmm. by becoming kind of one team in the moment. Not a true leadership book, but it's it's the quintessential definition of leadership and building a team. Mm. Uh, so I, I would encourage you if you've if you've not read it, it's it's very readable and uh, yeah. is is a great one. I, I, I think, uh, well, share it with friends who went to University of Washington and anyone who's interested in crew. Do you have or have you cultivated a routine or habit that maybe it's a morning routine or a consistent practice in your life that gives you that gives you leverage? So two things. Uh, one, I I get up early. Uh, I've got I've got young kids. How, I, how early is early? Uh, generally, right around five okay. every morning. Yeah. So I, I'm the one who gets the boys ready for school and gets them. Get and, and then my wife actually gets up and then brings them to school. Yeah. But um, I enjoy. Uh, I'm a big coffee drinker. You and I have talked about that. So I enjoy having my coffee. Uh, I'm a complete traditionalist. I get the paper New York Times, and um, I read it every morning before I get my boys up, yeah. and then I get them up and get them ready for school. And uh, I find the Times covers enough different topics that if you read most of the stories that catch your eye, mm-hmm. you get a good feel for what's going on in, in different areas. Just kind of one, if something comes up in a professional conversation, you've at least somewhat heard of yeah. it or can speak to it. And then two, I think um, as leaders, um, part of our job is keeping fresh perspectives and, and thinking about what's around that next corner, what the opportunities are. And if all you do is read trade press, and, and I'm very guilty of that, I, I read a lot of it. If all you do is read trade press, you miss those big macro things that yeah. are going on. So um, I treasure my time mm. uh, alone in the morning. <laughs> and then because my parents always had dinner together, oh. I try to always be home for dinner with the family. Time's dinner. It varies. We, we, we've pushed it late a lot of times, but uh, we, we try to have it together because um, it's a fundamental part of communicating. I, I don't want to miss you know, my, my kids. This, this business is part of our family. Like it, it intrudes mm-hmm. on almost every element of what we do, oftentimes in a positive way. Yeah. You know, we've a lot of the team members here, like uncles to, and aunts to my, to my kids, but you've got to carve out time to listen to your children yeah. and to be focused on them. So uh, I, I don't bring my phone. I don't even have it in my pocket because I can oh, yeah. feel it vibrating at the dinner table. Yeah. So uh, uh, I, I treasure and set aside that time for the, for the family. That's beautiful. I'd be remiss if I don't ask. As I sit in what is in some ways a showcase of the progress and awards and accolades of the business, uh, and you talk about your focus on family uh, you know, look out over Nissan Stadium, a, a living testament to Governor Bredesen's uh, legacy. What are you most proud of in your career? I'm most proud of what we're going to do in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, this team that we have put together, as idealistic as it was to start a solar company in a part of the country where there was no solar, that was the easy part. Building a team in a part of the country where there was no experience yeah. solar professionals to yeah. to draw from was the bigger challenge and you know most of our long-term employees 
they bet on a company that was small. They moved their families to Nashville, mm-hmm. Tennessee. None of them are from here. The faith that those individuals put in our company and our leadership creates a bond that you just want to pay back in a very meaningful way. And, and I really feel like we've built this foundational framework where we're, we can tangibly see the good that we're doing in the communities where we build projects. Yeah. There's nothing like, like I love getting our, our teams together and sharing, frankly, the impact. You know, we sponsor scholarships in these low-income communities. Mm-hmm. We, um, in one community, very small community, Bluffton, Georgia, um, one of their fine young, young, uh, young people ended up being a casualty and in, in, um, uh, going off to serve in the military. And, and when you lose a young man out of a small community, Uh, who's a leader, that's really impactful in a town that has 400 people, maybe. When when we read the story, I didn't have an opportunity to meet meet this individual. But when we read the story that they were trying to build a a monument uh, to commemorate and and, and acknowledge his service and sacrifice, uh, we wrote what I considered a relatively small check Mm -hmm. to, to, but it ended up being a, a, a third of the cost of, of building this wow. this in a will harris and, and a, a relative of wills were the other two mm-hmm. other two leaders and um and and what i love is 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 we do our own podcast here at, mm-hmm. at silicon ranch the ranch report and and i have a podcast where we talk about our our armed services and our heroes and and we actually interview the mother as, as part of that story and uh it's incredibly moving not just the impact it had on her but on our teammates, some of whom have been mm-hmm. in the armed services that go and bring flowers to, mm-hmm. to, the, to the memorial every time. I just, when you build a company the right way with the culture about doing the right thing, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we, we always say we're, we're all about square corners. We will spend, we'll take a smaller profit to deliver on a promise that we make. Mm-hmm. That ethos, really it, you're proud to be a part of it, you love seeing it reflected in the team that you build because we mm-hmm. attract a certain type of employee. And uh, it's humbling. It's interesting. I, I, I feel very humbled when we have our town halls and I'm talking to our teams mm-hmm. to realize uh, the incredible people that are sitting here counting on, on me and, and our other leaders to make good decisions. So it's, it's a meaningful responsibility. I'm very proud of it, but I, I think if... I, I always say our best days are ahead, and mm-hmm. I believe that more now than I ever have before. I hope to get the opportunity at some point to highlight some of the remarkable team that you have referenced, uh, Beasley and Rob Hamilton, who worked for Al Gore. I mean, you've got just a tremendous team here who helped to tell the story, but it's always a privilege and honor to be able to sit down with a co-founder and, and hear from your perspective how this all came together and where it's going. If this story has inspired others in the community, is there a way that you would encourage them to reach out or to connect with you and the team? I read every email I get. Mm -hmm. So I'd say email. uh, Beasley is always trying to help. I'm terrible on social media, but he's got me on LinkedIn. (laughs) So uh, send me a LinkedIn. Please become his 13th connection on LinkedIn. (laughs) Goodness sake. And and choose the one that says Silicon Ranch, because I still have two for my commissioner of revenue days that I don't know how to turn off. So uh, But um, yeah, I, I love, like I've, I've really, this is an incredible 
to, to sit down and have this dialogue with you and, and appreciate what you've done, which uh, is, I, I asked you early on before we got, uh, got on mic, uh, when, when do you get to be interviewed? Because I would actually <laughs> love to hear your story and, uh, yeah. and maybe we can get Beasley or someone or That'd Rob to, to hold the mic and, and turn, it, turn it your way because uh, we shared some good stories before we, yeah, we um, undertook this. But, um, on the ranch report. On the, oh my God. <laughs> there you go. There it is. <laughs> That's it, Rob. The Ranch Report is our internal thing. Got it. Silicon Ranch Radio. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to call Jim Bissell does that for us with mm. Rob and, and, and B. So I'm going to tell him I have secured our next guest. <laughs> that'd be, we that'd don't be quite honored. have your audience space, but hopefully yeah, everyone tune in to Silicon Ranch Radio. Yeah, so one plug I'll make. There we go. I'm, I'm happy to give you uh, That's One of the questions I ask, how, how can the Suncast audience help? And uh, I would encourage you all to uh, n- not only share, as we always say, this story, if it's inspired you, but definitely tune in to how Silicon Ranch is impacting the communities where they work and invest, uh, which you can hear through the Silicon Ranch, uh, the Silicon Ranch radio. I'm inspired by the work that Rob and the team are doing to communicate in unique and novel ways uh, the impact that you guys have. Well, I always end with uh, one final question that I call bold predictions. So uh, here it is, Reagan Farr. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I don't think my view is unique, <laughs> but uh, I told you there's a scaling problem that mm-hmm. I don't think our industry's totally gotten their arms around. And I, I really do think you're going to see meaningful consolidation mm-hmm. in, in our space going forward and institutionalization. You know, it's still a very entrepreneurial space and there's a lot of room for that entrepreneurial growth. But as we start delivering things at scale, I think uh, it will lend itself more and more to, to better capitalize more institutionalized players in the space. Reagan Farr is the CEO of Silicon Ranch Corporation, one of the co-founders. And uh, we have been regaled and uh, informed, delighted, in fact, to hear not only how the company came together, but the ways in unique corners of our economy, Silicon Ranch is carrying forward the vision that many of us have for the energy transition that we all are pushing so diligently towards to impact climate change. I'm honored for the opportunity, the invitation by Rob and Krista and your team to be able to come and sit with you. My first interview in two years in person I'm loving this uh, opportunity. I can certainly understand why the folks that I admire, like Rich Roll and Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss, uh, often run into the two and three hour space because these conversations can just unfold in ways that are unexpected when we're face to face. So thank you for that privilege. Oh, well, thank you. I'm a, I'm a big fan. It's always fun to me to see a face, to go with the name that, yeah. that you are, to go with the voice that you hear on these podcasts. So thank you. It's, uh, it's actually been probably more fun for me than it's been for you. I've really enjoyed it and uh, look forward to having you on Silicon Ranch Radio. Fantastic. I learned a lot of things from Reagan Farr when I got to sit down with him and his team in Nashville. It was so much fun. Reagan, Krista, Rob, Matt, thank you for inviting me into your home and having the presence to sit and tell your story. It was such an enjoyable time together. My hope is that you too, dear listener, have been able to saddle up to the table right next to us, eavesdrop on our conversation and come away with some earth-moving truths of your own. What were they? Would you be open to sharing them with me and the rest of the Solar Warriors and the Suncast tribe? 
I know Reagan would sure be honored if you posted a comment on my post of this episode or perhaps even create your own post over on LinkedIn expressing how this two-part episode landed for you. What turned out to be the thing that surprised or inspired you the most from the Silicon Ranch story? Let us know, please. Be sure to tag us so we are aware that you posted. If it's not a comment, of course, on my own post over there. And of course, if you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more from this and every other episode in the show notes at mysuncast.com. And yes, as I've teased and should be obvious, we are rounding a momentous milestone here on Suncast. The very next conversation on the show is the 400th. I've invited a very special guest back, my old friend and fellow solar warrior, Mike Silvestrini. If you're unfamiliar with Mike, well, you should go give episode number 85 a listen back from May 2018, where I detailed how Mike sold the then largest U.S. solar developer, Green Skies. He's back to build on his incredible journey, but also help us celebrate 400 times we've hit the publish button here on Suncast. It's a not to miss episode. Thanks once again to our sponsors for helping keep this content free to you. You can show them love and learn more about their offer over at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you can learn how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like this every week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up for the 399th time, solar warrior. It is half the battle.